Hello, church. Everybody's got their time card? If you don't have one, raise your hand so we can get you one. Need a time card? Keep your hand up. The ushers are going to find you. Somebody in the blue shirt. Keep, if you're down the front, keep it up so they can see you. Everybody make sure you get one of these. Hey, I just want to remind you too, if uh, you're going to be with us Father's Day weekend, dads, we're going to be going to a Tides game uh, at the end of the service. We'll do an abbreviated service that night uh, from five until six, so that way we can get to the game. If you want to uh, bring uh, your kids with you, you feel free. Uh, you can go online to the website and, uh, and get those tickets online, but that's become an annual tradition here. We have a great time together. Uh, many of us have been going there uh, with our kids for uh, for uh, for years, probably for, I don't know, about eight years we've been doing it, and, uh, and it's a great time together, so I hope that you're going to take the time to, uh, to join us that night. So uh, they do fireworks at the end of the game. Uh, the kids, the younger kids get to run the bases, uh, so uh, they have a great time. All right, so with your time card, there should be a pen in the uh, pew in front of you, right, in one of those racks. So I just, I want to invite you to, to get one of those pens and write your name right there on the top of that time card. Just write your name. We're going to be using these later on in the service. So just everybody write your name. I know some of you are having flashbacks, aren't you? I know. You break into a cold sweat, remembering that boss that you didn't like, that one time you filled it out wrong and you almost got fired because of, I know, right, all the memories just come flooding back. So write your name right there on the top. Father, we thank you for this time that you've already had us in your presence. And we know that you've got more work that you want to do in our hearts. And we pray, Father, that, that your word, which, which you speak of as being living, Father, we pray that it would come alive inside of us. It would birth what only it can birth that it would cause to die what only it could destroy. We pray that the power of the truth of Scripture would shape us, sculpt us, inspire us, and call us forward into the destinies that you created us to live in. Christ's name, come on, and everybody said, amen. So, so back from when I was in high school, there's this crazy thing that's always happened to me. When, when people can't remember my name, they always call me the same thing, without fail. Back from high school. When, if, if they couldn't remember my name, the, the name that they would call me would be Jeff. I know, right? Many of you, right? You've, you've had this unction, right? His name's not Jeff, it's Fred. And you're pulling it up on Facebook just to make sure because that's what we do. And so, so, you're, you're, and so my, my theory kind of when, when I was younger was that Fred is kind of an old man's name. Fair enough, right? When you, when you see little kids running around, the first thing that comes to your mind isn't Fred. But, but, and so what I'm finding, much to my chagrin, is that people aren't calling me Jeff very much anymore because I look a lot like a Fred, right? But just the other day, I was at a doctor's appointment. Now, my name gets even more confusing because I'm a middle namer. Do I have any middle namers in here? Who's a middle namer, right? I don't know why parents do this. If you're, if you're getting ready to start a family, don't confuse the world. If you give your child a first name, use the first name, right? So my first name is Joseph, but my middle name is Frederick, and so I, I go by Fred. So I'm the middle namer. But when you're filling out paperwork that involves insurance or whatever, right, you got to put your first name on there. And so there was a person in the doctor's office who I know called me Joe. 
They said, hey, Joe, come on back. Your, your appointment's ready. And as we were walking back, they turned around. I kid you not, this was just this week. They turned around and they said, did I call you Jeff? And I was like, oh, there it is, right? I still got it. I'm not quite a friend yet. I'm not quite... I, the, the, one of the first times it happened, I had this summer job at DuPont. I grew up in Richmond and I worked in a factory the summer before I went away to college. I worked there the entire summer, the entire summer, all three months. And so the, the, uh, the, the shift that I was on decided that they were going to all chip in and buy me a cake. And on our lunch break, they brought, oh yes, somebody said no, no, yes. This, this is a true story, right? They bring out the cake I've been there the whole entire summer, and, I'm bring, and they, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. It's a big surprise. They're like, you know, yeah, we're so excited for you. It's been great to get to know you. And then people start to look down on the cake, and they have this really strange expression on their face because on the cake, it says, good luck. Yeah. Yep, Jeff. <laughs> and people were like to the lady that bought it, what's wrong with you, right? But she didn't know. There's this power in the universe, and it overcomes people, and they... They can't get away from it. I'll never forget that job because it's one of the first jobs that I ever had where I had to punch a clock. I had a time card. And when I would get to work, like many of you, you go to the wall and there is this big contraption that hangs on a wall and your card was in there. And you had to find it and you would pull your card out and you would stick it in the clock, right? It would stamp it with the time, and then you would clock in and out throughout the day for your lunch and when you left work. And that's how they kept track of, right, back when there were dinosaurs of how you, many hours you worked. One of my kids came up to me for the service and says, what is this? I said, it's a time card. And they said, I still don't know what that is. <laughs> I know, right? But this is how they used to do it. I'm going to invite you to hold on to this card this entire summer. Put it on your refrigerator. Stick it in your Bible. Put it in the visor of your car. Somewhere where you're going to see it every day. Because I believe one of the challenges that some of you are facing is this is how you treat Christianity. You're clocking in and you're clocking out. That some of us, when we're engaging this journey as a devoted follower of Christ, we find this sense of freedom to find the card that has our name on it and we punch the clock. And it gives us a false sense of permission to begin to do things the way we want to do it. If you've ever had a job where you punched a clock and you've clocked out for the end of the day, maybe it's Friday, you're not expecting to get a call from your boss on Saturday night asking you what you're watching on television. Maybe if you know him well enough and you have a friendship and they're just calling to say hello, but what if they were to say to you, I don't like that program. I want you to put the TV on channel whatever and watch this. You'd be like, you know, this is really weird. Because your boss doesn't have authority over you when you're off the clock, right? That's part of the sense of punching out is that now you're free to do what you want to do. But when you're on the clock, there's an expectation that the company that you work for gets to dictate some things to you. 
They might have a dress code. They might have a certain culture of how you're supposed to respond and and react to one another. There's going to be safety protocols. There's all kinds of rules and regulations. Maybe you went to a new employee orientation, and you had to learn all the do's and the don'ts. And when you're on the clock, the company has a right to tell you what to do. When we make a vow of devotion to Christ, the sovereign creator of the universe has the right to direct our lives. In fact, what I would say to you before you make a vow of devotion to Christ, the sovereign creator of the universe has a right to govern and direct your lives. When you make a vow of devotion to Christ, what you're doing is in your heart, you're saying to him, I'm ready to follow your ways. And you punch in, and you never clock out for the rest of your life. Matthew 16, 24. This verse that we've been reading together now, this is our seventh and final message on directional living, is talking about this very thing. Living a life with a heart of surrender and deference to the will of God. Matthew 16, 24 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The emphasis is on direction. And we've been talking ever since Easter that there are two primary directions that God wants to govern in our lives. There are moral decisions and there are purpose decisions. Let's put that chart up there. I'm just going to throw it up briefly in case you're visiting. We've been digging into this teaching for many weeks now, but the Emmaus zone or the Emmaus scale is this idea of the plans of God. And then we've got the Sodom and Gomorrah scale or the Sodom and Gomorrah zone. Again, if you want to hear all that explained, you can get it on the podcast. This idea that that Christianity, for so many of us, we grew up only thinking of Christianity in the realm of morality, but Christianity also has to do with purpose. Let's put that other shot up there. Purpose deals with things like vocation and home and finance, marriage, family, church. God has ideas about all those things for you just as much as he does moral decisions. Throughout this whole series, we've been talking about the Emmaus Zone because for many of us, that's the part that's new. But tonight, we're going to finish the series talking about the Sodom and Gomorrah Zone. We're going to talk about moral decisions. We're going to talk about sin. What does the Bible call sin? How am I supposed to know whether or not something that I'm doing or not doing is sin? God wants our lives to be constantly moving towards this idea of Zion, to a place where our heart is saying to him, I'm clocked in, I want to follow your ways, and I believe that your will always has my best interest at heart. So our text to kind of launch us out tonight is Matthew 15, so if you've got your Bible, you can turn there. If you've got pages or if you've got a phone, however you choose to get there, Matthew 15, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. It says, Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus, and they asked him, Why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. And Jesus replied, Why do you 
Why do you by your traditions violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. Serious business 2,000 years ago, kids. Grounding meant something back then. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents, so you counsel, can't cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're clocking in, they're clocking out. Their worship is a farce. For they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. He said, listen, he said, and try to understand it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. I love verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and said, do you realize that you offended the Pharisees by what you said? See, this is one of the reasons why Jesus was so controversial Because 2,000 years ago, as he was teaching people about the ways of God, he was constantly contradicting the religious leaders of his day. He was constantly saying to them, that thing that you're saying is sin, it's not. So stop telling people that it is. And then he was also saying, these things over here that you're giving people a sense of permission and liberty to do and not do, stop doing that because that's sin, Not only did they have this idea of clocking in and out and doing what only God wanted to do when it was convenient for them, the very things that they were teaching people were right and wrong at many times were the complete opposite of the ways of God. And Jesus is telling us in this text that there should be a sense of clarity. We should not be confused about what's right and what's wrong. We should not be confused about what's sin and what's not sin. There should be something in our lives that has a sense of confidence that we know the boundaries that God has for us and because we're not clocking in and we're not clocking out, we're living our lives within those boundaries all the time. Listen to this verse in Matthew 18, 21. Peter comes to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So Peter's saying, I understand this idea of forgiveness. I know I gotta do it. If I'm gonna be a child of God, I've gotta be willing to forgive people. But what I wanna know is if they keep doing the same thing over and over, how many times do I have to forgive him? And then Peter came up with the biggest number that he could think of, right? He said, seven, right? And if you've ever had somebody that has done something to you that you've forgiven them for at least five times, you would agree seven is a big number. You're thinking, I gotta, I gotta keep forgiving. this. Now, forgiving and trusting, that's another sermon for another day, but those are two different things. He's talking about the offense that you hold in your heart. And Jesus says, Peter, not seven. 70 times seven. The word that you find here in this verse for sin is the root word in the Greek, hamartia. Every time you see the word sin in the New Testament, almost every time, there are only a few exceptions, almost every time, it's this word or some form of hamartia. Now this word was a word that people in Jesus' day were familiar with because it was an archery term. It meant to literally miss the mark. So if you're aiming for the middle and you're way out here on the edge, you've missed the mark. 
And the reason why this is the perfect word for sin that we've been given as Christians is because there's no confusion about the result. If you've ever done archery and you had three arrows and you shoot them and not one of them hits the target and you walk up and go, look at how great I did. And your friend says, what are you talking about? And you say, I got three bullseyes. And they're like, your arrows aren't even on the target. How can you say that you've got three bullseyes? It's interesting, isn't it? That the, he could have picked any word that he wanted to articulate. There's all kinds of concepts about falling short, just like we have many different ways to articulate and communicate that based on our own vernacular and cultural norms. They, they had that 2,000 years ago too. He picks the one that has a sense of clarity to it, meaning that you can see whether or not you're on the target or off of the target. Now, the Bible talks about two different kinds of sin. It talks about sins of omission and sins of commission. Let's talk about sins of omission. Sins of omission is the good that you should do, but don't. It's the sense inside of you that I know that I'm supposed to do something as a Christian. For us, there are 12 central ones. We call them pathways. If that concept is new for you, if you're visiting, we've got a little booklet that we'll give you called Praxis. It's a little green booklet. It's free. Find someone after the service in a blue shirt, and they'll give you one. We call them pathways. Many of them grow up thinking of them as spiritual disciplines. We like to call them pathways because they take you somewhere. It could be that God is holding up this target for you today. And he's saying, I don't see any arrows on your scripture target today. It's a sin of omission. It could be that God's been speaking to you about getting involved in serving in some capacity and, and maybe you've been coming here for some time and you're just, you're benefiting from the service of others and God says, I don't see any arrows in your circle here. It's a sin of omission. It could be that God's been speaking to you about giving and you're just giving out of what's left over and not practicing the biblical principle of tithing and God is coming to you and saying, you see this target right here? You don't. You've got an arrow on there, but it's way on the outer edge. Let's move that thing closer to the center. Sins of omission. Now, sins of commission, that's something a little different. It's the things that you're doing that you shouldn't be. It means that you've got an arrow in a place that it doesn't belong. Let's talk about your sexuality. Sexuality is an incredible gift that he's given to us. But sexuality is supposed to be experienced within the context of holy marriage. So it's an arrow that belongs on a target, but only after you said, I do, at an altar like this. So if you've got an arrow in a target with sexual experiences and you're not married, God says, Let's, that arrow's got to be removed. Come on, let's put that back in the quiver, if you know what I mean, and let's wait for the right timing. You tracking with me? I know you are. Sins of commission. It's the things that you're doing that you know you're not supposed to be doing. It's not about moving the arrow to a different place. It's about getting that arrow off the target completely because those things don't belong in your life. One of the hallmarks of spiritual maturity is that your sin moves less from commission and more to omission. 
You and I are going to be sinners for the rest of our days, but spiritual maturity, one of the things that marks it is the scale begins to tip off of commission. You should be able to begin to conquer these things over here. The things that you're doing that you're not supposed to be doing, you're not supposed to struggle with them for the rest of your life. The scale tips, right? We're never going to always do everything we're supposed to do at the level that we are because we're human. We're always going to fall short. I don't paint my nails. But I do build porches and all the other guys, when my wife was talking about painting nails, I know you thought the same thing that I did. That's called caulk in our world, right? <laughs> there, there ain't a whole lot you can't cover up with some caulk. That looks perfect, I know. I went through 14 tubes of caulk, right? This is the idea of my life as a devoted follower of Christ. I want, I want to get out of that world and wrestle with this world for the rest of my days. Commission and omission. Not clocking in and not clocking out. When Jesus gets a hold of our target and he begins to talk to us about the things that we don't like for him to talk about, this is what we reach for. This is it. We reach for it. And we're complicated people. We don't just have one of these. We got about 40 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 of these. And our Christianity becomes a compartmentalization of certain areas of my life in regards to omission and commission where I just want to clock out of this one little piece. And so I have all kinds of cards. I've got a card here for my attitude for my in-laws. Now, I don't have a card like that. I'm saying you have a card like that right? I have a card right here for the person that sits two seats over from me at my job. I've got this card over here for my parents when they've gone to bed and there's not a passcode on the television for what I'm supposed to watch and not watch. You tracking with me? We got all kinds of cards. When I make a vow of devotion to Christ, I gather up all my cards, the big old stack, and I just lay them at the feet of the cross, and I say, I'm clocking in, and I'm never clocking out. And I want you, by the power of your Holy Spirit that lives inside of me, to convict my heart for commission and omission. I want to live my life according to the culture of the kingdom of heaven. Psalm 119, 1 through 8 says, Joyful are people of integrity. What does that mean? It means you're not clocking in and clocking out. Joyful are the people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil. They walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. I love this last part. Please don't give up on me. Come on, please don't give up on me. Forgiveness, it's powerful. 
I want to give you, with the time that we have left, we're going to go through these. I want to give you four principles that I believe that when you get a hold of these things, you can have a sense of clarity when it comes to sin in your life. You can have a sense of clarity as to when you're outside the bounds or whether or not you're on target. And the first one is this, based on this psalm that we just read, it starts with the principle that God has the final say. It's got to start there. It's got to start that you're willing to trust that he has the final say, that he gets to make the rules, that he has the right to say to you and to me, stop doing that, and we say, yes, sir. Or he says, start doing this, and we say, okay, I will. Matthew 15, 13, it says, Jesus replied, every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted. I remember doing a community service project with a group of us from church years ago. We were doing a leaf rake in, uh, in, a, in a neighborhood, and, and there was this row of hedges. They looked like they were relatively new that someone had planted that you could see was going to be a hedgerow that would kind of separate a property line with the people that lived next to them. And I've got my rake, and I'm raking in between the the, 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 the bushes, and they're still, again, they're relatively small, and the rake keeps scraping on something, and I'm thinking that, you know, maybe it's roots, but I'm like, no, the, the plants still look too new for that, and so it just, it keeps scraping, it keeps scraping, and so finally, I reached down, and I, I got my hand down into the soil around the plant, and you know what they did when they planted that plant? See, the plant comes in this black little pot, which is just supposed to help you get the plant home. And then you dig the hole, you take the plant out of the pot, right? And then you stick it in the ground. And, you know, these plants have probably been in the ground for, for three years. But they look like they'd been in there for three days. Why? Because they were all in these little pots. Oh, throughout the yard. Remember saying to the person, right? Because you don't want to make them feel embarrassed. Those would grow a lot bigger, right? If you took them out of that little pot that's in the ground. See, this is part of what you and I do. We get a hold of this idea, I want God to plant things in me and uproot some stuff that doesn't belong and put some stuff in that needs to be there, but we like the idea of our will being that little pot that's just on the underside of it because we don't want that stuff to get too big in our life. When you take the step of becoming a devoted follower of Christ. It's saying to him, you rip out whatever needs to be ripped out. I want you to start planting whatever needs to be planted. And if it's like kudzu and it's going to take over and that's what I need, then come on, bring it. I don't want to restrain it or contain it because of my reluctance, because there's something inside of me that doesn't want to be all in because I like this idea of clocking in and clocking out. God has the final say. If you're going to have clarity when it comes to sin, you've got to buy into the belief that he's earned the right by the sovereign creator of the universe to have the final say. If you're going to have clarity when it comes to sin in your life, you have got to be willing to embrace when you read the Bible that there are things that are time-bound and that there are things that are timeless. If you were part of CYP last night, you know we dug around into this a little bit. If you're going to have clarity in your life when it comes to sin, you've got to believe that there are things in this book that are time-bound 
and that there are things that are timeless. 1 Corinthians 11, 4 through 6, a man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying, but a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. So if you're a woman and you came in here tonight, how how many of you were given a hat to wear just in case you wanted to pray? Right? Yeah, nobody. Because we don't practice that anymore. But 2,000 years ago, when Paul was writing to the church of Corinth, this was important. This was a part of how they practiced Christianity. Now, are there churches that still do it today? They are, but you know why they do it? It's because they don't understand the difference between time-bound and timeless. There are things in the Bible that are a reflection of the cultural norms of their day. And God knew that the world wasn't ready for every change that he intended to make. But he knew that one day, as time would march on, I'm going to use a big word here, that our hermeneutical process, which means the science of the study and the interpretation of the Bible, would grow and mature to the place that with the Holy Spirit, and with scholarly study, and through the establishment of doctrine, that we would begin to look at this book and discern between time-bound and timeless. You will not have clarity in your life if you don't accept these two concepts as part of your interpretation of Scripture. We talked last night with the College of Young Professionals that Philemon is a beautiful book, but it's one of the most perplexing books in the Bible. If there was ever a time for God to say to the world that owning people as property is wrong, it should have been in that book, but it's not there. Paul has a runaway slave. He's become a devoted follower of Christ. He's sending him back to his master. And what he doesn't say in Philemon is, hey boy, to the master, my friend, Owning people is wrong. You can't do that as a Christian. And then there would have been thunder, right, and lightning. Where does Paul say, hey, you're on the road to hell if you own people? This is wrong. It's not in there. Why? Because God knew the world wasn't ready for that kind of change. This kind of teaching might be new for you, but You've been walking in it for most of your life as a devoted follower of Christ if you've been a part of healthy churches. Churches just don't like to talk about it because it makes them nervous. We talk about things that make you nervous here at the City Life Church. God knew that one day the world was going to be ready to move forward and that one day that we would be able to look at each other and say, that's wrong. God knew that humanity had limits, and so when Scripture was given to us, there were certain things that he chose not to speak to. Time-bound, timeless. In light of Scripture, in light of counsel, which means a scholarly discipline, and in light of doctrines, we're able to make good decisions about what's for today and what's not. If a church says to you, I don't believe that, then ask them about their head covering ministry at their church to see if they have one. Ask them if women are allowed to speak in their services because there's some verses in there that says that women have to be silent in the church. 
Every church is practicing this. But it makes them nervous because they believe that if they begin to talk about it and teach it, it will give people a sense of permission to apply time-boundness to whatever they want to apply it to, which is why we didn't start with this when we started our teaching. We started with the belief that God has the right to have the final say. See, because if you're only clocking in and never clocking out, you're not going to abuse the principle of time-boundness for your own convenience. If you don't, open up your heart to time-bound and time-less. Listen to this. Inappropriate boundaries will lead to legalism, and inappropriate liberties will lead to permissiveness. Inappropriate boundaries will lead to legalism, and inappropriate liberties will lead to permissiveness. Number three, you've got to make room for matters of conscience. If you're going to have clarity in your life when it comes to sin, you've got to be open to the principle and the concept of matters of conscience. Romans 13, 9 through 10 says, For the commandment says you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. What's Paul talking about here? He's talking about absolutes. He's saying there are some things that are never going to change. They're timeless. They are moral absolutes, and if Jesus doesn't come back for another 10,000 years, these things are still going to be wrong. And the reason why he's talking about these in Romans 13 is because in Romans 14, he's getting ready to introduce to them something called matters of conscience, meaning that something can be wrong if it violates your conscience, but it's not necessarily wrong if it violates someone else's. Romans 14 One through three, accept other believers who are weak in the faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything like myself, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will only eat vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do for God has accepted them what's Paul talking about he's saying hey there are going to be people that are going to have a certain sense that that if I do this thing it's going to it violates my conscience and Paul says you've got to make room for people to have a personal decision about something not feeling right to them if it's not a moral absolute, right, you can't say, well, I have a sense of liberty with this moral absolute. That's why moral absolutes are important. But things that aren't included in the Bible under a list of moral absolutes where it clearly says this is right and this is wrong, we enter into this world of matters of conscience. It might feel wrong to you and you've got to trust your own heart. Paul teaches us in Romans 14 that sometimes People struggle with a matter of conscience because they don't yet have the revelation of the liberty. This was part of what the early church struggled with 2,000 years ago. Many of it, I was talking about food, is because of the dietary laws of the Mosaic Law. Jewish people were, were becoming Christians, making vow devotions to Christ, but they had grown up their whole life with certain dietary restrictions, and they did not yet have the revelation, right, which is why Jesus was talking earlier in Matthew 15, it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean, it's what comes out of your mouth. They did not yet have the revelation that they had a liberty. And so Paul was saying, hey, stop bullying those people and making them do things that violate their conscience. Be patient with them. But matters of conscience also moves the other way. Because people, if it pricks their conscience, 
so many times for their own need for self-affirmation wanted to become a moral absolute because they want everybody to follow their own sense of conviction. Let me give you some specific examples of what I think fall under today's in 2018 when it comes to matters of conscience. Alcohol consumption, I'm putting it on the list. There's nowhere in the Bible that says alcohol consumption is wrong. Drunkenness and intoxication is clearly stated on many occasions that that's a sin. But alcohol use that's consumed in a way, right, the Bible talks about obeying the law of the land and then doing it in a responsible way, I would say that's a matter of conscience. It might violate your conscience. It might not violate someone else's. Then you've got to give each other room to trust their own heart. Some of you might have a conviction about listening to secular music. Somebody else might have a sense of liberty. Somebody might have a sense of conviction about certain kinds of media content. Somebody else might have a liberty. What I would say to you is that the answer as to whether or not it's a liberty for you is to really look at the fruit that it produces in your life. If you're walking around and you can't figure out why you've got a problem with the objectification of women, but yet you continue to put yourself in front of media that only presents them as a sexual object, and sometimes you've got to understand the causal relationship that's happening in your life. You might say it's a liberty. The question is, what's the fruit that it's producing in your life? And you might say, well, it doesn't seem to produce that fruit in their life. Well, then that might mean that they have a liberty to do this thing. But if it has a negative effect on you, then you've got to be willing to say, even though I know this isn't a moral absolute, I need to stop doing this whether or not everybody else does or not. You're not going to have clarity with sin in your life unless you're willing to embrace the idea of matters of conscience. Last one, foregoing liberties. We're not going to do the last song. I'm just going to preach through that time. Foregoing liberties. Somebody say no clocking out. Romans 14, you got to love these chapters. Come on. Maybe you're not loving them so much right now, but one day you will. If another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it yourself. Don't let your eating ruin someone else whom Christ died for. Come on, Paul. He's so... Then you will not be criticized for doing something that you believe is good. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. So then let us aim for harmony in the church. It's interesting here, he's been talking about sin for quite a while, and what he does not say is let's aim for righteousness. Because that's a foregone conclusion. What he's saying is, as we walk in righteousness, let's make sure we're reaching for harmony. Let's try to build each other up, he says. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. No, no, no. Is is that what he meant to say? Didn't he mean to say that it's wrong if it violates your conscience? No, no, no. He's already talked about that. He's moving on to something else. He's talking about moral absolutes, things that are right and wrong for all people for all time. No matter how far you back you go in history, no matter how forward we get to go, it's always going to be wrong. And he talks about matters of conscience. It might feel wrong to you. It might feel wrong to somebody else. A liberty for another, a conviction for one, and we've got to give each other grace. 
Is this one on? There you go. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. The Bible's so rich, isn't it? Forgoing liberties means that if you're looking at something and you're saying, you know what, there's nowhere in the Bible that lists this as a moral absolute. Right and wrong for all people for all time. And then you search your own heart, not because you're clocking in and clocking out, not because you're giving yourself a sense of permission that you don't have the right to give yourself a sense of permission, but it's something that's not a moral absolute, but in your heart, you're saying, you know what, I don't have a conviction with whatever this fill-in-the-blank is. I don't have a conviction for it. The Bible gives us a third category called foregoing liberties. And it means that be aware of who you're with and who's watching. Because just because it's not a moral absolute, just because it doesn't violate your conscience, if in doing it, it can cause someone else to stumble, it's sin for you. It's powerful, isn't it? It's God saying, be willing to give stuff up that you're at liberty to do for the sake of one another. Now, you might say, well, Fred, that sounds to me like you're saying it might be okay for me to do it in certain settings, but not in others. That's exactly what I'm saying to you. And you might say, well, isn't that hypocrisy? No. It's not hypocrisy if it falls under forgoing liberty because the only reason you're not doing it is because of the risk of the harm they could have on someone else. So if you don't have a conviction in your heart about secular music, right, and somebody gets into your car who's riding to work with you and you know that they do, then change the station. But if they're not in the car with you, then what I would say is if it's not a moral absolute, and let's just agree that there are some music that falls into the category of moral absolute, right? And then, and then there's, if it doesn't violate your conscience, then you're free. Then you're free. I remember at the men's getaway this past fall, and we had like 60 guys there. Session's over. We're all hanging out at the campfire. It was awesome sitting around talking about life and marriage and fathering and careers and I had my favorite pipe. Some of the guys out there had their favorite cigar. We weren't doing that at the trunk of treat, trunk of treat in October when the kids were coming by for candy. Why is that? Because we believe in this idea of forgoing liberties, of understanding your audience, understanding the setting that you're in and the people that you're around. Can I, I talk to this about the college young professionals all night. You know one of the reasons why the world is irritated by Christians? Because Christians are not willing to deal with the complexity of sin to the degree that the Bible speaks to it. We're, we're just, we want just one, we're just like, God, just give me one list. So I can do all the no's and all the yeses, right? But that's not how life is. That's not how the life is that the sovereign creator of the universe made it. He says to you and to me, there are moral absolutes. There are matters of conscience, and there is forgoing of liberties with commission and omission. And he says to you, and he says to me, you can't clock in and clock out on any of these. He wants you to have clarity 
when it comes to sin. And clarity, listen to me, takes community because you're never gonna figure it out by yourself. You've gotta avail yourself, open yourself up to relationships with people that are farther along in their journey as a devoted follower of Christ than you are, that know how to ask you the right questions, that know how to help you to begin to sort things out, to help you begin to self-reflect on the own targets in your own life, where your arrows are missing and where things need to be uprooted and things need to be planted. The church should be the place that has the most clarity when it comes to sin, but unfortunately for too long, we've been the place with the most confusion. And the world gets frustrated by it. And at some point, we've got to resume and find the moral authority that God wants the church to have so the message of the gospel can come to the world in the way that it was supposed to, which is through his church. Stand with me. Jeremiah 10, 23, I'm going to paraphrase this for you. It basically says that man cannot find his own way. I love that verse as a capstone for this sermon series that we've been in now for seven weeks on directional living. You and I, we cannot find our own way by ourselves. We need the Father who created us. We need the son that he sent to forgive us and we need his spirit that he freely gives to fill our hearts. And we need the family of God, the body of Christ, the community of the church to find our way. Father, I lift up every person that's here tonight. I pray that every time this week that they see that time card, if they're clocking out, they're gonna clock in. For some of them, they need to take a picture of it and it needs to be the screensaver on their phone. For some of them, they need to photocopy it, and they need about 10 of them so that no matter where they go in their house, it's there waiting for them. Whatever people need to do to find the motivation that they need. For some of them, they got to call someone for coffee. they got to schedule a lunch. They've got to step out of isolation and begin to embrace community. Father, help us to get it right in our lives so we can have the voice in the world that you've called us to have so we can help the world get it right in their lives. In Jesus' name, come on. And everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week.